This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Everything that Tom Rich and myself have been up to 19th of January on a Thursday, live from Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week. We've been down here for the Sustainable Finance Forum and having a big chat, well, about the money. That includes speaking to Andrew Tarbuck of Altamimi about what companies need to think of if they're trying to raise cash through an IPO. We've also been looking at Dubai taking another number one top spot uh, for tourism with tourism boss Isam Kazim and speaking to Sarah Hewardine of Hauser about the Abu Dhabi property market and how it differs from that in Dubai. Business breakfast on tour. Uh, we are out on the road, a bit of a road show as we head down to Abu Dhabi uh, to be part of Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week, but specifically to be part of Abu Dhabi Sustainable Finance Forum, which gets underway on the stage just in front of uh, our broadcast position here in uh, just a matter of an hour or so. Uh, it acts as an ideal platform to gather both regional and global industry experts, all of whom will be taking to said stage in just a little while. Um, it's also, uh, this year, it's going to gather the top global investors and government leaders, regulators and financial institutions to discuss areas of collaboration to increase and manage the flow of capital towards sustainable investments. Let's get some thoughts from both Brandy and Rich, who are alongside us at the moment, uh, both of whom, in fact, uh, no, Richard Dean is speaking down here a little late. How are, you, how are you speaking here and getting to Saudi Arabia in the same day? It's a busy one. Um, but yeah, I'm on stage with a really cool guy. Hiro Mizuno is one of the speakers here at the Sustainable Finance Forum. He was the boss of Japan's pension fund, $1.5 trillion, and he made it go green looking at ESG investing even before it was cool almost 10 years ago. He's the UN Special Envoy on Innovative Finance and Sustainable Investments, and he's a board member of Tesla. So he's a busy guy, but he's here, and I'm going to be on stage with him having a fireside chat a little bit later on about sustainable finance. What is it, and how do we get it to work? Because there are so many things that need financing, whether it's solar power plants, or whether it's wind farms, or whether it's waste-to-energy plants. The list goes on, but they all cost billions and billions of dollars. So you need the bankers and the financiers on board. It's something actually that we heard about earlier on this week and will today at Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week from Sheikha Sharma to give her her full title, Her Highness Sheikha Sharma bin Sultan bin Khalifa Al Nahyan. And she's a renowned champion of eco-friendly policies, a speaker here today in about an hour and a half's time. One of her latest ventures is something called the UAE Independent Climate Change Accelerators, looking to boost companies that are in the green energy space or the the, the, the eco-friendly space, but they all need financing. It's so important that these things happen. You've got to get the bankers on board. We're following the money this morning, basically. We're following the money trail to make sure that these things get the funding they need. Yeah, look, we are indeed. And one of our guests that we will be speaking to before he goes and stands on stage um, and does his bit is the GCC director, so the golf boss, if you like, of the World Bank. He's going to be hosting a session um, promoting the idea of what he's calling a green falcon economy, uh, which is catchy, um, but is it more than just a a nice little slogan. How do you actually make this Green Falcon economy 
take wing, if you like, uh, catch flight. Do we have enough investable projects? Do we have the investment infrastructure, the regulation, everything we need in place to make them desirable to the international bankers who will be filling the seats um, in the hall that is just in front of us? Basically, how do we convince people to lend us the money, not just in things like ESG loans, but also in things like sustainable debt, green bonds, which we have seen the unfortunate pun to follow green shoots of recently but how do we grow that and what actually is the appetite for sovereigns to do that and so we can hear now from her highness shaker shama uh, who as richard was saying renowned champion eco-friendly policies uh, talking about the ua independent climate change accelerators so we work across the full spectrum of sustainability and so we look at electric mobility agri-tech, climate tech, um, sustainable fuels and, and everything under the sustainability umbrella. Big news happening down here in Abu Dhabi. Big news happening internationally as well. We'll get on to what's happening in New Zealand uh, momentarily. But one of the headlines that we are following today is that meeting of minds regionally yesterday. UA President Sheikh Mohammed hosting regional leaders uh, from Qatar, Oman and Egypt, amongst other countries to discuss boosting prosperity, not just here in the UAE, but across the region as a whole. Um, Katija Hack, Chief Economist, Emirates MBD, is helping us out with this one. We asked Katija, how important are these regional economic ties? Regional economic ties are extremely important, not just in terms of trade, but also to support neighbouring economies that are facing economic challenges. Over the last year, the GCC has provided economic and financial assistance to countries around the region, including Egypt and Pakistan, through increased assistance financially, placing deposits at central banks, uh, and also investing in those countries' economies. This was an important stabiliser as uh, import bills rose sharply on higher food and energy prices. At Davos yesterday, Saudi Finance Minister Mohammed Al-Jadan said the kingdom was working with multilateral institutions to use the financial aid that they provide to support economic reforms in recipient countries. Teacher Hack there, Chief Economist, Emirates MBD, giving us uh, thoughts on that meeting of minds yesterday uh, here, regional leaders coming together uh, in UAE. Uh, that's what's happening regionally, internationally. Uh, Jacinda Ardern has had an eventful evening. Uh, Yep, an announcement in Napier in New Zealand that she will be standing down as Prime Minister. She's to go early February ahead of an election that will take place in mid-October. The messages that we're getting in um, are as divisive as she has proved to be on the world stage. Some for her, um, some against her. She says that basically uh, she doesn't have enough in the tank to lead the party, not just into, but through an election and basically um, intimating that she will stand down so that whoever does lead the Labour Party um, into the election is the person who then will be doing the top job afterwards. Let's hear from her now. This is Jacinda Ardern and you can hear in her voice very emotional when she announced her resignation. And so today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election and that my term as Prime Minister will conclude no later than the 7th of February. I know what this job takes, and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. It's that simple. And she went on to talk about some of her experiences in office. 
This has been the most fulfilling five and a half years of my life, but it has also had its challenges. Amongst an agenda focused on housing, child poverty and climate change, we encountered a major biosecurity incursion, a domestic terror event, a major natural disaster, a global pandemic and an economic crisis. The decisions that have had to be made have been continual and they have been waiting. But I'm not leaving because it was hard. Had that been the case, I probably would have departed two months into the job. I am leaving because with such a privileged role comes responsibility. The responsibility to know when you are the right person to lead and also when you are not. It's an interesting one, isn't it, that speech? Um, she finished off by saying, as to my time and job, I hope I leave New Zealanders with the belief that you can be kind but strong, empathetic but decisive, optimistic but focused, and that you can be your own kind of leader, one who knows when it's time to go. A sentiment that you don't often hear in high office. Yeah, they yeah. often cling on, don't they? As I was going to say, can. you can think of a few. You can think of a few who maybe haven't, haven't heard that warning bell. Looking at the messages we're getting in, um, one message, no name on this. One of the most divisive prime ministers ever. Crime wave, high inflation through taxation, destroyed the New Zealand economy. The United Nations or World Economic Forum can have her. Uh, others are in favour of Jacinda. I applaud Jacinda for being so self-aware and serving her nation by stepping aside when she could not serve them effectively from a cup half full. Still remember, Burj Khalifa lit up. Mm -hmm. uh, following the, the tragic attack on the mosque in New Zealand in honour of Jacinda Ardern. That was certainly a moment. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Uh, Dubai is a destination that mixes modern culture with history and adventure with world-class shopping and entertainment. Uh, not my words, uh, but those of TripAdvisor. As Dubai is ranked as the world's most popular destination for holidaymakers in TripAdvisor's 2023 Traveller's Choice Awards. Uh, let's get more reaction to this one from a man that's helped to make that happen along with his team. It's the CEO of the Dubai Corporation for Tourism and Commerce Marketing, the DCTCM. Issam Kazim, kind enough to join us live on the line this morning. Morning, Issam. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Brandy. Good morning, Tom. Um, congratulations, Issam, to you and your team. I know you work tirelessly towards these goals. And let's get your reaction first and foremost uh, to this accolade for the second successive year. Obviously, for us, we're very, very proud. And it's, I think it's congratulations are, are uh, in order for not just the work that, that the DCTCM does, of course, but the entire city, everyone working in the, in the travel trade and hospitality segment, including attractions, restaurants, everyone. Why is recognition like this, especially global international recognition, so important to you and your team in the country as a whole? I think when you look at, especially when you look at the uh, TripAdvisor's Award, this category in specific, when it talks about the traveler's choice, it tells you that whatever the city is doing is actually being recognized by the guests and the visitors who, 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 who come to the city. And that's, that gives us a clear indication of at least how we're tracking in comparison to other cities around the world. And, and the fact that we've won it back to back, it's uh, it's probably the second time this has ever been done by any destination. So it is definitely a proud moment for us. And it also goes back to celebrate 
um, Dubai's uh, decisive um, uh, leadership in the way that we opened up the city, the staggered approach, creating that safety in, in people's mindset, knowing that Dubai can actually provide all of the um, uh, necessities for any traveler, as long as it's keeping a very, very safe environment for them to be able to enjoy and go back safely to their, to their home countries as well. You mentioned there it's a proud moment. It goes, uh, certainly is a proud moment. It's also great recognition of great achievement as well, as you mentioned there, doing this back-to-back in what has been a really, really testing time for travel and tourism the world over. Uh, that's quite significant, isn't it, Isabel? Absolutely. And I think in, in, in true spirit of what Dubai has been doing over the past few years, um, since lockdown, I think the whole world has taken notice of Dubai, right? We've not only had more visitors come in, right? If you look at the KPIs that were set out for us, we want to increase number of visitors, increase length of stay, spend, as well as repeat visitation. Across all of those metrics, we've been, we've been doing really, really well. But since the merger of the Department of Tourism with the Department of Economy today, we're also focusing on becoming the number one most uh, livable city, the best city to live in. And we've put a lot of measures there as well. We've rolled out new visa programs. We've made it easier for people to access the city, to be able to set up shop over here. Regional HQs, global HQs, family offices have all increased in numbers and the demand is, is, is through the roof. So, so there's a lot that we're doing here. We want to add more to the fabric of, of, of the community that makes up Dubai. We always talk about celebrating the fact that we have 200 nationalities that have chosen Dubai to be home. They make up close to 80 to 85% of the population and the reason for that. And I think now if you look at these kind of awards, it again gives us a chance to continue that message and continue communicating that across a global uh, platform. I mean, one thing we learned during COVID is the importance of collaboration, the old adage that uh, teamwork makes the dream work. You mentioned there about the merger of ministries here, ministries working together to a common goal as well. Things like the Dubai Economic Agenda, uh, D33, uh, amongst others. All of these working together for one common goal for the country as a whole. Yes, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, when you look at the success of Dubai, it has actually been built purely on the success of the private-public partnership. Mm. And Dubai is one of the cities that we're so proud to see that it is the government sector that leads. And the private sector actually are, are, are always constantly in touch, knowing how can we maybe work better together? What can we do that actually pushes the bar even further? And, and that's the spirit, that entrepreneurial spirit that exists in Dubai and is, has always been the reason for Dubai's success so far. Yeah, you mentioned there uh, the bar and pushing that bar even further. I mean, the bar has been set very, very high as it is, Issam. And after the extraordinary successes of 2022, how do you better that in 23? Well, I think we started the year quite well. On uh, the 4th of January, the uh, Sheikh Mohammed Succession Day, he announced uh, the agenda for D33. And that agenda purely focuses on every single pillar within, within um, uh, the, the economy of Dubai and what will be contributing to the GDP of Dubai. You're talking about uh, exports, you're talking about manufacturing, you're talking about every single thing that Dubai has built its success on over the years, including logistics, including trade. All of those will play a huge factor for the next 10 years. And the reason and the significance of the 2033 date is that it also marks the 200-year celebration of the establishment of Dubai when the Al Maktoum uh, and, and, and the uh, Al Flasi tribe uh, settled in, in this part of the world. And all of that will lead towards the next 10 years. And if you look back, 2013 was the date that we had won the bid for Expo. And we've already uh, not only gone through building the site, we've also delayed it by year due to the pandemic. We've also hosted it and it's gone. So 10 years passed really fast. And in true Dubai spirit, I think it's, it's, it's something they'll be looking forward to for
for this new date of 2033. You mentioned Expo there and a lot of talk about uh, the eyeballs that came to the country or the eyeballs on the country during Expo 2020. Similar for COVID with a lot of people coming to Dubai for the first time once the borders opened up and the the arms were thrown open. World Cup as well, eyeballs. A little later on this year, COP28, obviously we're down here at Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week. Will COP28 also impact that new sort of uh, aspect of traveling here as well, new eyeballs? Absolutely, because I think when you look at sustainability um, and, and, and the initiatives going towards the world becoming more green or carbon neutral, there's a lot of initiatives that Dubai uh, and as a city and UAE as a country have, have um, put a lot of focus towards that. And I think COP28 is, again, a, a message that it's not just about big events in Dubai or big announcements in Dubai, but also talking about bringing in the great minds, bringing in um, uh, real problems that exist around the world and finding solutions here in one city. I think that that kind of like brings the seriousness of the destination uh, to the forefront. And it is important because people, as you mentioned, have noticed that over the past two years more so than ever before. And, and, and I think um, the fact that it's completely aligned with the UAE agenda, it, it kind of puts the perspective on on the, the market steps and the measures that we have put in place to ensure that Dubai continues, not just for the event itself, but has been doing so, will do for the event, and will continue to do so beyond that as well. Issam, can't thank you enough for your time this morning. Congratulations to you and the team. That's Issam Kazim, the CEO of Dubai Corporation for Tourism and Commerce Marketing. Joining us live on the line. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Speaking now to one of today's key speakers, he's joining us before he takes to the stage. Dr. Isam Abu Sleiman is the GCC Director of the World Bank, and he's going to be hosting a session in about 10 minutes on what the Gulf needs to do to basically create what he's calling a green falcon economy. It's a great name, it's a great line, but what would it actually look like? Well, uh, thank you very much for Dubai Eye to hosting me and Brandy. Thank you uh, also for uh, your question. Look, first, let me say one thing is that uh, it's great to see the COP coming to the UAE. And I think what we're seeing today and what we have seen this week is like a prelude of what probably will be coming. It's a small prelude of what will be coming. But the most important part for us when it comes to, uh, to climate and the GCC in particular is that there is no basically... Uh, uh, negative impact from a green growth strategy, what we're calling the Green Falcon economy, uh, and basically growth and jobs. And that's the most important part that's coming from our Gulf Economic Update. And let me just say a few things about the World Bank, and I'll I'll concentrate on your question. I mean, the World Bank today is uh, the biggest financiers in developing country for climate finance. Last fiscal year, we have done $31.7 billion in in the world and this is a 19 percent increase from the year before which is a big chunk however this is a very very small part of what the world needs and in our uh, estimates the most conservative today the world needs around four to five trillion dollar per year if you want to stick to the 1.5 degree of paris agreement the world today is allocating around one trillion dollar towards climate finance so you see the gap is huge and where the GCC we see it can play a big role is really to go into a different strategy and going into sectors that are growth sectors for the future that are also 
uh, good for the climate. And that's basically where this report talks about, and that's where we see a lot of synergy with their own vision and the growth that can come from this type of strategy. Okay, well, let's have a look at that report, which you released as part of your GCC Economic Outlook for October. You say that the biggest win could actually come from electricity, from power generation. Tell me about that. Well, as you can, you can see around the world today, the cheapest source of energy or electricity generation is renewable. It's mainly photovoltaic, the solar and the wind. And the last three rec record-breaking in terms of cost have happened actually in UAE, Qatar and Saudi Arabia, close to one cent per kilowatt. So if we can just basically move into that direction, which the, the GCC has started to do, and we can see like the big announcement in Saudi Arabia that started to work on where they're moving 50% of their generation over the next seven years to be renewable and the rest of it to be uh, through gas. The, the big win from that is that they're going to save a lot of oil that in the short and medium term at least they can still export to the outside. So this is one part of it. But when we look at the upstream industry and the downstream industry and what basically the GCC has started to do from uh, electric vehicle that we have started, uh, started basically Saudi Arabia has taken the lead in the GCC. But a lot of the industry that can actually flourish in, in, in the GCC related to this upstream, how, what we need basically to generate the electricity and downstream all the vehicle and other type of equipment that is needed to move that forward. These are gross industry that according basically just for the energy transition, for according to the IEA, it's $27 trillion market between now and 2050. If the GCC can grab part of it and they, they are able because of their capital and how they are able to attract and bring in the knowledge, then they'll be able actually to grow their economy. What we expect, an additional 5% per year between now and 2050. And that has a huge impact on jobs, quality of jobs, and the type of people that you need in skilling and reskilling their own people here, but also what to bring from outside. So it will be good for them. It will be good actually for a lot of investment that can come this way. What do we need, though, to attract that investment? I mean, one of the questions that I think your report raises is whether or not we have enough investable projects. Yes. Well, here it's not, it's not about investable project. I think in the GCC has a right place basically for investment, you know, for and if we see how the, uh, the latest uh, contract for energy production has gone in here, in Saudi Arabia, in, on the renewable front, we can see that basically this is on electricity generation, the, the, the framework is there. They're able to do it. They have the capital. They have the, their wealth uh, fund has invested in some companies in a very smart way to, to be able to move into that direction. I think there is a matter of like acceleration and bringing the skills in, in, in some of the country of the GCC. The other part which is important to, to mention for the GCC is related to the, uh, the hydrogen, which here and in Saudi Arabia, as well as in Oman, they have started basically to deal with that part. And because of their low cost of energy, renewable or non-renewable, we see that the cheapest hydrogen can come also from this part of the world. And that can 
actually get to the sectors that are very hard to abate through regular electrification. One of the things that's certainly going to be discussed on stage here today is the investment and regulatory environment that, that we have to have put together to attract some of this money. What would you like to see happen next? Well, I think, I think some of the countries are on the right track. I th we, we have seen, I mean, this is, UAE, for example, has been in continuous reform for private sector uh, environment for the last 40 years. Saudi Arabia, the last five years, you could see an amount of reforms related to the business environment that has made it much easier for foreigners to come in with their expertise and capital, establish themselves and move. Dubai has done it for a long time. We can see this happening in Oman. We can see in Qatar that has also, I mean, it slowed down with the FIFA World Cup, but, uh, but they're taking it back on the reform stage for the whole environment for the private sector to come in. And we have seen it also in Bahrain. It's a smaller economy, of course, but, but they are all moving into the direction of uh, transforming their economy from being driven mainly by the public sector to be driven mainly by the private sector. And they're doing all the reforms that is needed. And you can see, like, even on the human capital side and, uh, you know, for expat, how easier it is today to get in and also move around for jobs which make their uh, economies much more competitive for the future. Well, Dr. Issam Abu Suleiman, the Gulf Director for the World Bank, speaking to us this morning about what is needed in order to build a green falcon economy. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Alda Properties, Abu Dhabi's biggest listed developer, planning to launch a dozen new projects this year amid the UAE's property market recovery. It's going to continue to look for acquisitions to boost its portfolio. That's according to a senior company executive who've been speaking on the sidelines of Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week uh, this week here in the nation's capital. Uh, let's get more now uh, on the Abu Dhabi market with the head of marketing for Hauser, Sarah Hewardine, who joins us uh, live on the line and live, I believe, Sarah, from Dubai this morning. Is that right? I am. Good morning, Tom. I couldn't make the journey, I'm afraid. Couldn't come down here and join us in the nation's capital. It's quite the drive. <laughs> Ain't it just? Uh, listen, it is quite the drive, but obviously near neighbours uh, to Dubai. Um, is, it, is it okay to compare and contrast the property markets in Abu Dhabi and Dubai? It's something that we do almost naturally. Is it fair? I'd say, look, it's fair to an extent. I mean, an hour down the road, it's very natural to compare, you know, the two cities. But, you know, it doesn't take many people to realise just how different they are, the type of buyers that come in, um, investors, end users. So I think the, you know, the environments are very different. And just linking on to what Andrew just said on his interview with you, you know, what we see in Dubai is more of a, you know, 60 to 70% cash market. And it's reversed in Abu Dhabi just because you don't have as many investors. It's more end users down in that market as well. So, look, there's always going to be comparisons there, but it's just also taking into account uh, the differences that we see in the market. We spoke to Issam Kazim a little earlier on about the importance uh, of tourism, the fact that the Ministry of Tourism here has evolved. It's also been merged with other ministries as well. Tourism, obviously, key to the property market in Dubai. Same in Abu Dhabi? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when you look at the F1, when it comes to real estate, that's something that's always done very, very well for real estate, especially now that short term rentals, the partnerships with Airbnb as well. 
Um, but the, you know, the Etihad Arena and all the new festivals coming in, it's definitely bringing more people to Abu Dhabi and even bringing more people from Dubai to Abu Dhabi. And I think it's always been a natural, um, you know, commute when people are living in Abu Dhabi and living in Dubai, maybe to commute to Abu Dhabi. But I think the more that these initiatives are introduced in Abu Dhabi um, and the more kind of events they have on, it will definitely bring more people considering perhaps living in Abu Dhabi and sometimes commuting to Dubai for work. And I think that's something we may see continue uh, as long as Abu Dhabi continues a lot of their tourism drive that we're seeing. And I think we also, you know, it's not just Abu Dhabi city, Abu Dhabi's huge emirate and you've got the empty quarter for Bani Island with so much to offer and especially when it comes to maybe movies and TVs that are being shot there so there's definitely a lot more focus on Abu Dhabi which I definitely think is helping the tourism and thus then the real estate sector as well. Let's talk about the supply and demand obviously an issue uh, for many up in Dubai at the moment uh, market not saturated at present but obviously uh, a lot of demand on that market at the moment is it the similar sort of development policy here I mean in Dubai I know it's simplistic, but it's almost they can't build them quick enough at the moment. Would that be a similar sort of mandate, a similar sort of uh, policy down here in Abu Dhabi? Not particularly, no. It's quite different. So where we've seen, and you know, when I look at the data and I look at the numbers, the growth that we've seen in prices and transactions in the Dubai villa and apartment market, you know, you've really seen a bit of a hockey stick growth. But when you compare that to Abu Dhabi market, villas have definitely increased, but not particularly at the rate. So when you're looking at the supply side of things in Dubai, you know, we have new announcements every week in terms of new projects that are being launched. In Abu Dhabi, there's definitely a lot more uh, caution in regards to the supply they're building just to make sure that supply demand balance uh, stays intact and I um, CEO of Alba um, recently said they are being cautious about the launches and making sure that you know the scale of the projects they're introducing are in line with the demand and I think that there are project announcements but it's by no means at the speed that you see in the Dubai market. Uh, we'd be remiss of us not to mention all things sustainability. Uh, it is, after all, Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week, and we are broadcasting uh, from said week at the moment. Just mentioned those new Alda uh, launches um, uh, a few moments ago, and they're looking at more launches uh, and building their portfolio over the course of this year. Sustainability, certainly key to Alda's policy at the moment. Uh, again, is it a fair comparison? Is there more drive towards sustainable building here in Abu Dhabi than it might be in, uh, maybe up in Dubai? I actually think there might be, to be honest with you, Tom, for the pure fact that what we've had in Dubai in terms of sustainable builds when the developers come out, we've really had diamond developers in Sustainable City, which are behind the new Alda Sustainable City on Yas Island that I believe started selling this month. Um, but for Alda to really come out with their own goals being net zero and a lot of the project announcements they've got coming up with that key focus on sustainability, um, it's fantastic. I definitely think we need to see more of it in the market. So, you know, that's project in particular I think will definitely shine a light on more sustainable buildings and as more developers come into this market in Abu Dhabi um, you know when you've got someone like Alda that are really taking the forefront when it comes to sustainability it's gonna put added pressure on these additional developers to make sure that they deliver in sustainable. Uh, let's finish up by being crass if that's right Saz by talking all things cash as well um, I choose my words carefully here better value when it comes to buying and selling property in Abu Dhabi? I'd say so, yes, um, mainly because, like I say, we've seen quite a lot of growth in the Dubai market. So if you're comparing, let's say I'm on Houser.com and I'm comparing a three-bedroom villa in an area like the Springs compared to somewhere like Al Raha Gardens or Al Reef, and you're really looking at around 25%, sometimes 30% cheaper. Obviously, it varies depending on view location. It's very hard to compare. But 
when you look at similar communities in terms of what they offer, there definitely can be more affordable options now in the Abu Dhabi market, whereas historically, I think that wasn't always the case. So things have definitely changed over the last really, you know, 12 to 24 months. How we fare over the next 12 months in both markets remains to be seen. Sarah, bless you. Thanks so much indeed for your time. I'll catch up with you back in Dubai sometime soon. Sarah is the uh, head of marketing for Hauser. Tune in again for our bi-weekly property segment where we answer your questions or concerns about renting, buying or selling real estate. Uh, and we always put them to the experts, getting you the answers you need. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.